So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out and just turn a couple of pages in and you're going to find the book of Genesis. If your Bible does not have the book of Genesis in it, then uh, put it down and get another Bible. There's plenty in the window seals. We're going to be in chapter three, but I want to kind of say a few things before we get into the text today because, um, and I don't speak just for myself, but I speak for many pastors in this city that are friends of mine. This city is in spiritual warfare, that there is a spiritual battle that's happening in this city. And I want you to know, and maybe you know this, but we have an enemy that is trying to take advantage of COVID and trying to take advantage of this coming out of COVID. And he wants to neutralize the church because I think the enemy understands the power of the church more than sometimes the church understands the power of the church. Because the enemy, uh, although he's very crafty, he's not very creative. The same tricks he did thousands of years ago, he's doing now, and he's he's a liar. And he doesn't want you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to know who God is. He doesn't want you to know what God has given you. Because if you've lost your car keys and they're in your pocket, you're gonna live your life as if you don't have your car keys, even though you have your car keys. That makes sense? All right, it made sense in my head. I hope it made sense in your head. Because as Christians, if we don't believe that we're the church, then we won't live as if we are the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter five, it says, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You hear what he said? You are light in the Lord. And then he says, so live as children of the light. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians is, do you know who you are? Are you living who you are? In fact, he goes on to say, wake up. He's challenging us. He's saying, church, wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And he goes on to say, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Midtown, we're in a spiritual war. He says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And this passage I'm about to read, I get angry because, well, maybe I am just angry. All right, I'm, is, I've heard this passage so misrepresented, so let's reclaim it. And it says, do not get drunk on wine. And so many guys have stopped right there and said, see, alcohol is wicked. Well, yeah, people have done wicked things with alcohol. He says, don't get drunk on wine. And then they leave off the next line. It says, which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the spirit. And what Paul is saying there is, you know what it's like when you drink too much wine? Okay, let's, this group participation. Y'all know what it's like when you drink too much wine? (laughs) Everybody in the room is like, yep, I kind of, some of you self-righteous people don't know what that is. But do you know what it's like when other people drink too much wine? And what Paul is saying, hey, that didn't happen by accident. You weren't walking through your kitchen and tripped and fell on a bottle of wine and all of a sudden, boom, hey, what happened? I don't know. I just fell on this, this like red stuff and I feel all funny. No, it's intentional. You got something. You took out the cork. You poured it. You participated in being filled with wine. And Paul is saying in the same way you know that, in fact, you probably know more about being filled with wine than you know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying, church, you are the church of light. Do you know as much about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you know how to get drunk on wine? Like, well, I don't know. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you need to reverse that. That you need to be more familiar what it means to be the church of light. 
which means the Holy Spirit is in you and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, I'm already preaching and I just got started. But this is so serious because I was sobered this week because what we did last Sunday was dangerous. You may not know that. Maybe you weren't here. <laughs> like what happened last Sunday? <laughs> we drank a lot of wine last week. No. <laughs> last week we talked about, Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment. And last week we unpacked that. Here's what's dangerous is for us to serve up something holy and everybody leave it right there. That is dangerous for us to say, oh, we are learning the secret of contentment, but I'm not practicing it. And so I'm going to go out here and I'm going to live like I'm not the church because the mark of the church is that we are content people. We don't go out there looking for peace. We're the people that go out there with peace. We don't go out there looking for contentment. We're the people that foster contentment within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we bring contentment into every circumstance. And it's a holy thing when we all go, oh, that's what contentment is. It's a dangerous thing when the church walks away from it. So I kind of feel like that um, we need to start afresh. So where do we start? Well, we're going to start right here. Right, like right here, like now. And what I'm going to ask you to do for the next 20 minutes is I want you to dare to go with me. Stay attentive. Stay with me. Stay with me. If you find yourselves in fields of Elysium. No, anyway. Stay with me. And uh, I want you to take a brutal inventory of your life. Okay? And it's going to be hard. It's going to take courage. But here we go because we're going to start at the very beginning because many of us, we know, if I ask you, what are the sins that you've committed in your life, the biggies, you would probably be able to list them pretty quickly. And so we are accustomed to knowing the sins that we have done, but we're not very accustomed to knowing what sin has done to us. And we're about to read the passage where sin enters the world for the very first time. And when, in, when sin enters the world for the very first time with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we know the sin they did. They ate the apple or the fruit or whatever you want to call it. But what we seldom understand is what sin has done to them. Sin destroyed their relationship with God. It destroyed their relationship with themselves. And it destroyed their relationship with one another. So we're going to take a brutal inventory of what sin has done to you. And then we're going to talk about what do we do with that. You ready? You in this? Yeah? No? You want to go eat chicken now? All right. Robert, would you like to come and read for us? You guys know Robert? I'm watching. If you didn't applaud him, you're reading next week, all right? So let's hear it for Robert. Yeah. <laughs> this is Genesis 3, 1 through 12. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent told the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened 
They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from it and I ate it. Hmm. Lord, there is so much here and <clears throat> I'm not up to the task, Father, to uh, replace your Holy Spirit. I, I don't have those gifts. Uh, but what I have, I give to you, Father, and pray that your Holy Spirit would then breathe on this in the hearts of my friends here and bring us revelation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So maybe you've heard this story to, uh, before where Adam and Eve <clears throat> broke the law of God and ate of the forbidden fruit and they sewed fig leaves together and um, went and hid from God and God's walking through the garden and listen to what happens uh, because I want you to know that if you're a, a student of scripture, anytime God's asking a question, you should stop and you should ask what's going on here because God does not ask questions that he doesn't already know the answer to. It's not like God said, hey, Adam, where are you? I swore I stuck you here last week. Where, where'd you go? Like, you know, it's not like you can't play hide and seek with God. Maybe a better way for us to understand this is, Adam, do you know where you are? Because <clears throat> look what Adam did. And many of us wonder, well, let me ask you, why did they sew fig leaves together? Like, what, who were they covering themselves up for? And we find it right here in the passage. He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Naked to who? To you. How, how did the God who was the creator, the father, the sustainer, the nurturer, the co-laborer in the naming of all the animals, all that was true about him and Adam. And even the provider and saying, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. How did that God now become the God that he had to hide from? How did that God now become the monster that we can't reveal ourselves to? How's that happen? Well, it's not hard to understand. I mean, guilt and shame uh, has an unbelievable power to drive us away from God. In fact, <clears throat> it can do it right here. Do you know that... Uh, that many of us uh, believe that what God wants from you more than anything else in the world is to get your act together and quit sinning. And we actually start to believe that, you know, maybe there was a time in your life, like before Christ, uh, and, you know, this was that season where you fell on wine a lot, you know, you stumbled into wine, and you met Jesus, and Jesus forgave you for all your sins, and he made you alive spiritually, and it renewed you, man. Think back on that day when you met Christ and it changed your life. And then you came out of the season and say, well, what do I do now? And you really started to believe because it's a part of our DNA. It's a part of Adam. We inherited this from Adam is we started to believe what God wants from us more than anything is to get better. And so we join a Bible study and we feel so good about our relationship with God because that Bible study was at six in the morning. 
And what God really appreciates is when I sacrifice to be in a Bible study. Like he can't be at prime time. Like it's gotta be really, really early. And so I go to this Bible study and I'm, you know, with all my friends and we're praying. I feel really close to God. And then my friends moved and, or they went away for the summer and I haven't been in a Bible study for like months. In fact, I haven't spent any quiet time with God for months and I feel so distanced from God. I just, he just sees, he's so far away. I just need to get back to praying. I just need to get back to doing right. And then we had that season in our life, you know, where our sexual history got a little wonky uh, and we don't want to talk about that. All right, and then, and we have all these experiences. We feel good when we're involved in church. We're volunteering at Kid Town because that's the holiest thing that you can do. Where's Jasmine? And uh, then I don't volunteer at Kid Town. And so we start to actually believe that, the, that my Christian life, meaning my nearness to God, is completely conditional upon how good of a person I am and how good I'm doing this Christian thing. Well, let me just say that is such trash. It's trash. It's not true at all. In fact, it's one of the lies of the enemy. Because let me break the news to you. You're a lot worse than you think you are. It's just true. But you're also more loved than you can possibly imagine. And holding those two things allows you to behold the glory of Christ, which is the purpose of Christianity. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that if you're going to follow Christ, he is going to take you to a place of understanding yourself that is darker than you can imagine. But he's also going to take you to a place of understanding his glory in a place that you can't possibly imagine. In fact, the darker I understand myself to be, the richer his forgiveness for me and his provision and his love for me. In fact, the whole goal of Christianity is that back here when I first became a Christian, you know, I was trying not to cuss. I was trying, you know, not to smoke, trying not to chew, not to try to go with girls who do, that kind of thing. And was feeling better, but when I failed, Jesus was enough. But then as I grew in my faith, I began to understand that, oh, I'm a lot worse than I thought I was, which means God's grace is a lot better than I could ever possibly imagine. Behold the glory of your God. Let me give an example. One example. So I'm a greedy person. I'm just going to confess it to you. I'm a greedy. I've been greedy. I covet. I'm a coveting pastor. I, I do. I mean, it's not a joke. It's, I'll give you a, an example, but it's, it's a past example. But I'm telling you, it's just as present. When Renee and I had little kids, we had a minivan. And it, it, I call it a monster, but other people call it a minivan. Because it was an old used minivan. It was a Plymouth Voyager. And if you don't know what a Plymouth Voyager is, imagine somebody somewhere said, we're going to create an eight-passenger vehicle and we're going to wrap wood around it. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be like a hand-carved car. It's not, and I want to take you serious. It was an old used van. It was all we could afford. And I'm, I hated that van. And we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. And if you don't know Charlottesville, it's the place of elegant horse farms and very wealthy people. And we'd gone to a wedding and we're pulling up to this unbelievable home and it, they got valets out front to park all the cars. 
And in front of me is every new edition of every high-end car you could possibly imagine. Whatever your favorite, I'm sure it was there. And I'm looking at them and we're, we're kind of up to the, up to the valet. The, the van is smoking and everything. And I'm feeling horrible. Here's what I'm feeling. I, I am feeling like I have to explain why I'm driving this thing in front of this house to a 15-year-old kid who's parking my car. He's a valet, you know? And I open the car and I go, hey, yeah, I know. And what I wanted him to understand is I'm not the kind of person that drives this. This is not reflective of me. I'm better than this van. I know. And so, then I said, okay, look, bro. Like I took him aside and said, hey, when you get out there and you park it, you're gonna turn it off and it's not gonna turn off, all right? So you gotta turn it back on, then turn it back off, turn it back on, turn it back off. And occasionally the windshield wipers come on, don't freak out, it's not possessed, <laughs> it's just broke. And if you will do me a favor, like I will tip you. What? He said, don't lower the windows because if you do, they won't go back up. Like it'll take us an hour to kind of do the, okay, go, hit the up, hit the up. Okay, that's all funny, isn't it? But let me tell you the real thing. I'm walking into uh, this home and here's what's happening inside of me. I hate that van. I hate it. And I want a BMW. <laughs> See my sin of coveting? What if I would have stopped right there? Jesus' grace is enough to cover my coveting. But Jesus is not content for me not to stop and take inventory because this is when the Lord says, let's talk about why you're coveting. In other words, you know, when you, when you weed your garden, you don't go out with scissors and just clip off the tops, you know, and go, ha, weeded the garden. No, you grab them and you pull them up by the roots so that you can get rid of them. And the Lord is more interested in you understanding the root of your sin, the root of what's actually going on in your life. And here's what he did. He took me to that, and when I discovered, I was coveting because I'm an immensely proud person. I don't ever want to be in a situation to where I am diminished in the eyes of other people, especially 15-year-old valets. Honestly. And God, here's the, here's the killer. My coveting is rooted in my deep unbelief of you. I do not believe that you're good for me because I cannot believe if you're good for me, that's the car you want me to drive. Because if I was you, I would never do that to me. I don't believe you. And the Lord said, bingo. You wanna deal with your pride and your unbelief? Because that's the route that I wanna take you to. When God called out to Adam and said, where are you, Adam? Adam, where are you? Do you know where you are? Do you know what sin has done to you? I ask that of you guys. Where are you? What is the sin in your life that is having its way with you? When we don't deal with sin, it deals with us. Pause for a second. I need you to take inventory. Remember, we're in a spiritual war and it starts right here. The second thing that we see is that Adam hid from himself long before he ever hid from God. What do I mean? When Adam and Eve sinned, the way they dealt with their shame and their guilt was to cover it up. And <clears throat> shame is a funny thing because shame 
Shame isn't that I've done something wrong. Shame is the deep belief that there is something wrong with me. And all of us struggle with it. Because shame says that there's something about you that you're not enough. There's something about you that's not enough that makes you not worthy of loving and it doesn't make you worthy of belonging. And so we all get very busy trying to figure out what is it that's gonna make me enough? What is it that's gonna cover up my fear of being seen? What's gonna cover up my fear of my shame? What's gonna cover up from me being exposed to all of you that I'm the poser that I think I am in my shame voice? And we get busy, man. We cover ourselves with accomplishments. We cover ourselves with clothing. I mean, look around, y'all are beautiful. Like, and some of you have taken showers. That's impressive. We cover ourselves with good works. We cover ourselves with respect. We cover ourselves with volunteering. We cover ourselves with what other people think about us or what we perceive other people think about us. We cover ourselves with what we look like. We're constantly trying to create something so the world can see, look, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm enough. I'm enough. You know, yesterday I was over in Green Hills and I actually ran into uh, some guys that I haven't seen, I haven't seen these guys in like 20 years. And I knew them when I worked at a church down in Brentwood. And if I told you their names, you would know them. Like they are, like, they're legit. They're like people, you know? You know what I mean when I say that? Like, they don't drive Plymouth Voyagers, all right? They're movers and shakers, you would know their name. And they're like, Randy, and I'm like, hey, I won't tell you the name. And they said, Tell us what you've been doing. I'm like, I haven't seen you in 20 years. And let me tell you what didn't come out of my mouth. Well, thank you, man. I've been dealing with how greedy I am and what a coveter I am. And the Lord has really been displaying his grace to me lately in ways that I've never known before. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know, guys, I'm a lot worse than you think I am. I am a vicious sinner, but Jesus loves me. Can you believe that? You know what's happening here? pull out of the backpack the resume to impress them. Why? We all do it. In Tim Keller's little book, uh, oh, where is it? I think I have it up here somewhere. Have y'all ever read this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness? Yeah, you don't want to read this. It's (laughs) going to mess you up. It'll ruin your, your nap this afternoon. In this, he's, he's talking about the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And he is quoting from uh, Vogue magazine, an article they did with Madonna a number of years ago. And he's really celebrating Madonna in this little book and saying, she's immensely self-aware. So, and he says, let me show you. And he takes this clip out of the article. Can I read that for you? This is Madonna. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's not sad for her. That's sad because all of us know what you're talking about. The first thing that sin did was separate Adam from Adam. And Adam went on a mad search for the secret sauce of life to find peace and purpose and to cover his shame. What about you? Where in your life have you said, Jesus, you're not enough? 
What you've done for me is not the thing that I boast in. It's you plus I got a other lot of things. Can you take inventory? And if we had time this morning, we could talk about, we don't because <clears throat> I need to wrap this up, but you know, you know what love is. Love is I'm willing to lay my life down for you. And the expression of love is I lay my life down for you. And in this passage, listen to what Adam said. He said, the woman whom thou gave me, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Who's he blaming? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Who? God. And he's including every living creature he knows. You know that, don't you? There ain't nobody else at the party, but if there were, he would fire those blame guns everywhere. All I got to tell you is that's not love. When we, let, when we let sin do what sin does to us, we stop loving and we start using people for blame, self-protection, self-glorification, self-justification. In fact, you may find that if sin has had its way with you, you've acquired a special human gift that ought to be one of the Avengers. You know what that gift is? The capacity to see where other people are sinning. I'm completely blind to you. It's a marvelous thing because you can live your whole life unaware, but justify it by blaming everybody around you. So in the middle of all this, Robert didn't read this part, but right after what Robert read, God turns to Satan and he says, I will put enmity. There will be a war between you and this woman, between her offspring and your offspring. Welcome to Nashville. And her offspring, the seed of Eve, will crush your head. Right in the middle of this tragic moment, God is declaring a promise that there is one who is coming who will do what you cannot do. One who will lift our shame. One who will lift our guilt. One who will heal our relationship with God. One who will heal our relationship with ourselves. And one that will teach us how to heal our relationship with one another. See, that's why Jesus said, I didn't come just to give you forgiveness. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full that allows you to be brutally honest about who you are and brutally honest about who he is and brutally honest about the way we live our lives. He restores our relationship with God. There is no condemnation. He restores our relationship with ourselves and dares us to grasp how deeply we are loved. And he dares, he restores our relationship with others. He says, if you will be loved, you will learn to love. Hmm. Let me end with this. You know that van, that wonderful Plymouth Voyager <clears throat> uh, in a box. Do you know that the Lord said, okay, I want you to repent the depth of your sin, your pride and your unbelief. <clears throat> And I want you to bring it into the glory of this van. So every morning I went out there and, and my prayer would begin, please, Lord, let it start. <clears throat> you know, and when it did start, it would turn into singing. Yes, thank you, Lord, for a car that will get me down the road. And you know what the Lord was doing in his graciousness? Go back to Ephesians 5. If you had that down, listen to what he says. How do we be filled with the Spirit? Speak to one another with psalms hymns and songs from the spirit 
Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you care more about my soul than you care about putting me in a Mercedes. Thank you, God, that you find me more valuable, that you want to do more work in me, and then you want to do work through me than you want to give me the small desires of my heart. Okay, I'm done. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go into some worship, and here's what I'm asking you to do. Where have you run away from God? Repent. Come home. Where have you avoided yourself? Repent. Come back to the one who loves you. Where have you broken the relationships in your life? Because you've been more important to love than loving. Repent. See, because when we repent, it's, it's not, when I repent, it's not like Jesus is giving me fresh forgiveness. That he forgives me all the way up to this point, but every sin after that, I got to confess or he's not going to forgive me. So I'm not really forgiven. Scripture says that when he went to the cross, he went for all my past sins, my present sins, and all my future sins. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. It is done. On the cross, he said, it is finished. So why do we repent? Why do you say you're sorry to somebody who already loves you? Because it brings us back to the sanity of remembering I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. And repentance reminds me, oh, but I am more loved than I could ever possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is your church. Thank you that you call us the light of the world. Thank you, Father, for your compassion and love that leads us to brutal honesty and brutal acceptance and unbelievable love. God, would you dare us to step into that journey? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.